Well, hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Um, if you got here later, if you were just not paying attention as usual during the video announcements, um, just curious, what time does church start next week? And what happens if you get here at 9? Yeah, we're just hanging out. I don't even think the donuts are out yet. You don't even get to choose your donuts early. And, um, but you know what? In this season where we've seen because of COVID and other things, our numbers dwindle a little bit. I think it'll help. Uh, to have one service. If you have attended churches at different times in the past, the 10 o'clock service is like the sweet spot. It is the best time for church on Sunday morning. And the good news is at 10 o'clock, I won't be navigating having to talk to that guy all the way over there and that person all the way over there and just you all spread out all over the place. So I'm looking forward to 10 o'clock. Please don't come early next week because we'll be hanging out looking for things to talk about early. I'm going to have you take your Bibles. Turn to Jeremiah 17. 17. We're going to be in Jeremiah 17, just looking at six verses this morning. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. We are in a study. This is the third week in a study that's going to go 12 weeks. It's going to go all the way through the fall. It's important to us as a church. It's a Christian worldview. What is the lens or what is the biblical uh, view that we take as we look at our universe, as we look at life, as we look at our culture. And what we've done is we've divided the series into two parts. The first is five weeks long, um, and it's looking at foundations. So we looked at who God was two weeks ago. Last week we talked from 1 Peter 2 on who are we. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at the subject of sin. And so even as I say that, just a little bit of a heads up, probably not a lot of goofing around this morning little bit of a heavier topic. Uh, last week I was at Spring Lake. I was playing wiffle ball with people that I was pulling out of the auditorium. That's harder to do when you're talking about sin. And uh, one of the things that I've appreciated in the 12 years of, or 11 years, however long it's been that I've been pastoring here, is that um, the people of Harvest have had a desire that whoever is preaching, hey, just, just open up God's word and tell us what it says don't hold back any punches. And today as we look at sin, just understand it's going to be a little bit of a heavier sermon than I would normally give. And then the next couple of weeks, next week we're looking at salvation, then we're looking at scriptures. Those are the foundational things as part of our Christian worldview. And then we're going to be looking specifically at areas where our worldview right now uh, rubs against or is abrasive to what we're finding as a predominant worldview out in our culture. But just as reviewed two weeks ago, we looked at this idea as God is supreme. And we looked at Isaiah 44, 8, and God is speaking. It's one of those, thus says the Lord passages. And he says, is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. And we were talking about the idea, if you're going to anchor your belief system, your worldview in something, I don't know where else to, to send you. I don't know what other alternative you have than to anchor it in something that is bigger, that is greater than yourself. And that was expressed in Isaiah 44, 8. Last week I preached from 1 Peter 2, verse 9, talking about who we are, how God sees us. And it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the point that I made last week was, if God is who he says he is, if he is supreme, then you need to understand his definition or how he sees you or who you are is determined not on what you think, but it's on what the creator of the universe thinks. And this is the way that our God views us, his followers of Jesus Christ, that we are set apart, that we are placed on mission. God gets to define us. 
And this week, we're just looking at six verses. I just want to read through the passage. Let me begin again, Jeremiah 17, 5. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord. Another one of these passages. This is the Lord speaking. It's not Jeremiah's opinion. This is God speaking. It says, thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So something interesting about the Wissen family, I, I live in a family uh, that is made up of theologians. My, my daughter Catherine um, went to Cornerstone University. She studied theology at Cornerstone. She's currently working on her master's through Dallas Theological Seminary. The, the girl loves theology. Can't get enough of the theology classes. This summer she took a class on the role of women in the church, and, and I can use terms like egalitarianism versus complementarianism, and some of you might know a little bit about that. I'm just saying she read 2,000 pages on that topic alone. She, she is our theologian. My wife is a theologian. I preached uh, last Saturday night at Spring Lake, and coming out of preaching, there was a disconnect. I could feel it in the room, so I went to my wife, and I'm like, help me fix that. It wasn't like, did that connect? I already knew that it did. It was like, help me fix that. She's like, like, here's three things that you can do. And it's like, awesome. This is great living with theologians. Calvin is a theologian. He went to Moody. My son Christopher is a theologian. My daughter Nico is a theologian. Alex, my other twin daughter, is a theologian. And my daughter Marianella, all six of my kids, theologians. Kind of weird to live in a house full of theologians, right? Here's what I suggest to you. You also live in a house of theologians. And whether you know it or not, whether you admit it or not, you're a theologian. You have a view about who God is. You've come to some conclusions about who God is. Every one of us is a theologian. The guy that's going to show up and bring your shift groceries, that dude's a theologian. He's got a view of who God is. The person that sits next to you at work in the cube next door. Or I guess we don't do that anymore. The guy in the Zoom call, right? That guy's a theologian. He, he has a certain belief or a certain idea about who God is. And whether he realizes it or not, his view of who God is drives his activity. It's one of the foundational things. We're all theologians. Our culture right now has a, adopted a view that some call secular humanism. It's also sometimes called expressive individualism. All of these, even if they deny the existence of God, are theolo theological positions. They're, they're defining what you believe about God. 
There was a uh, philosopher slash scientist, one of the smartest men that ever lived centuries ago by the name of Blaise Pascal. He said it this way. He said, every person on the face of the earth is making a high stakes life commitment to a particular faith view about God. In essence, everyone's betting their eternity on what you believe about God. Now, this idea that our culture has embraced of either uh, expressive individualism or secular humanism, you can go online, you can search a lot of definitions of what secular humanism is. Let me just throw this one on the screen. Cal used it last night in Spring Lake. I thought it was good. And he said this, he said, secular humanism, this is the definition he found. It said, the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without belief in God without belief in God, that we are capable of, of self-actualization, that we can become everything that we have the capacity to be on our own. We can define our own morality without the concept of a supreme being or a holy God. Now, just understand, if you run into somebody say, I'm not a theologian, I don't even believe in God, that's a theological statement. You can't prove that God exists. You can't prove that he didn't exist. So in saying, I don't believe in God, he is making a theological statement. God doesn't exist. That's his theology, what he believes about God. And then that will drive the way that he chooses to live his life, the decisions that he makes, whether he realizes it or not. Last week when I was preaching at Spring Lake, I mentioned this idea that um, our, our church is losing a biblical worldview. And there's a group by the name of Barna Associates. They're kind of like the Gallup poll. They do surveys. And they found that in our country, still 60-some percent of our population, our adult population, would identify themselves as Christian. But of that two-thirds of our society that identifies themselves as Christian, only 9% of them hold to a biblical worldview. It was interesting, one of the results of the survey, those who identified as Christians... 66% of them, I mentioned this last week, of those that claim to be Christians say that having faith matters more than the faith that you pursue. So they're saying, what's important is that you have faith. And whether that be Christianity or Islam or Judaism or whatever you believe in, what's most important is that you believe, have faith. That's a theological statement. It's saying something about who God is. It's saying that God's not particular in how you approach him. You can approach him through various means and various avenues. person who may not believe in God, he says, well, listen, just, just what, what I do is I kind of go through life. I, I trust my instincts. I, I, I follow my heart. That's a theological statement. What he's saying is, he's saying that as, that as I view the world, as I use decisions, I go with my gut. In essence, saying what I feel, my feelings, they trump other aspects of my decision-making process. What you'll hear very often today is this idea that we all have to decide what is true for ourselves. And, and, and again, a theological statement. That, that truth is not um, uh, objective, it's subjective. That, that your truth might be different than my truth. That we all might have to find our own truth. That it depends on the individual. And with the goal of secular humanism being that we are trying to be the best version of ourselves in the fleeting moments of our existence, man becomes the highest authority of this worldview. And what's interesting, if you, if you study kind of 
philosophy or, or, or how man has viewed himself, this is something that's somewhat unique to our generation or our time today. Throughout history, every culture before us has believed that what was right or wrong was determined outside of ourselves, either by a God, by natural law, by tradition, by culture. And our job was to harmonize ourselves to these absolutes of right and wrong. Secular humanism or expressive individualism, each one of us decides for ourselves what is right or wrong. And it's determined by our feelings, our conscience. It's coming from inside of us rather than outside of us. This week I was at a soccer tournament and uh, it's my grandson Bo. He's playing over in Detroit. It's his first tournament. I think he's playing maybe U9 is the age group. It's little guys, okay? And uh, I spent several hours yesterday sitting in Detroit watching a lot of young kids play soccer who will never be pro. Um, they're just never going to be pro. And uh, Bo had a good game. He had four goals in his first game, and he's one of the better players on his team. But if you sort through all the kids playing on all the different fields, he's playing U9 bronze division, gold, silver, bronze. And he might be the best player on his team, but they're in one of the lower categories in Man, I've been coaching and watching soccer for a lot of years in western Michigan, and I've watched a ton of kids play, and sometimes their parents thought they had wonderful potential, and I'm like, that kid's never going pro. But what if he wants to? What if he feels like he should? What, what, shouldn't he be able to reach his dreams? And that kid's never going pro. Missing the genetics. Doesn't have it. I remember my son Christopher was a senior in high school and uh, he was one of the captains on the team and they were doing summer practices and the coaches weren't allowed to attend. But I was asking Christopher after um, uh, one of these summer uh, team gatherings, I'm like, hey, any, any good new players? He's like, yeah, there's a freshman there. I go, any good? He goes, yeah, he'll start varsity. That's a pretty bold statement. Freshman's going to start varsity? He goes, dad, you should see this kid. He took his shirt off and that kid is ripped. He's a freak. Kid's fastest kid on the team is a freshman. And guess what? The kid started varsity. And I think he then went on to Ferris. He ran track for Ferris and walked on to Michigan State's football team after being a soccer player. He was a freak athlete. You don't make those. They just show up on your team sometimes. But, but, but we believe in our expressive individualism that all of us can accomplish whatever we want and, and, and we're our own determiner of our future and... It's become a very, very selfish approach to life. And in the backdrop of this, it shouldn't surprise us that when our culture has embraced secular humanism or expressive individualism, that we become very fragmented as a culture, right? Everybody's deciding what's right and wrong for themselves. Everybody else has uh, their own opinion on, on what is best or what will make them most happy, and they're free to pursue those things. And the only thing that you're really not allowed to do in our culture or in our context is to say that your way applies to somebody else. It's okay for you to believe in God. It's okay for you to hold to Christian beliefs or to have a biblical worldview, what's going to get you in trouble is if you say the biblical worldview that you hold is absolute truth and it doesn't just apply to you, but it applies to everyone. That's going to be met with hostility in a society that has embraced expressive individualism. So some of these things that we're talking about, some of these foundations are going to brush against kind of the 
underlying foundations of the things that our culture believes. And it's interesting, even as I turn to Jeremiah, I'm surprised by this. Jeremiah was a prophet that spoke to a fragmented culture. Israel had been one nation, but by the time Jeremiah shows up on the scene, it's a fragmented nation. There's a north and there's a south. As Jeremiah prophesies, uh, or is, is, is a prophet speaking, uh, Israel's in rebellion. It's no longer following one God. It has been embracing the gods of the surrounding nations, of the people that they've intermarried with. And where there used to be in Israel a more consolidated view and answer to the big questions, who are we, why are we here, who is God, what's right and wrong. By the time Jeremiah comes up on the scene, Israel is in decay, has a nation, has a culture. God is going to judge their sin, and he's speaking to a fragmented people. And I find it interesting that in speaking to this fragmented people, he would write what he chose to write in Psalm, or I mean in Jeremiah 17. Now, as we go through our notes, let me just start with this. We're going to start with verse 7. I'm going to go a little bit out of order. We're going to be in 5 through 10, but I want to start in the middle, and I want to talk to you for a minute about God's ideal for us. So if you're keeping notes, the first point is this, God's ideal. The reason I'm jumping out of order is it becomes pretty obvious to me that as I read through Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah has been reading some previous portions of Scripture, because what he says is a parallel in many ways to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, I'll just read this to you. In Psalm 1, 1, it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It goes on and say, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So in Psalm 1, the psalmist takes first the man who walks according to the Lord, who has put his trust in the Lord. Jeremiah, he picks that up second, but I'm just going to kind of follow the pattern from Psalm 1. Look at what it says in verse 7 of Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The contrast in this passage is is really clear. There's two different types of men, two different types of people that are being talked about. One of them in verse 7 is the one who trusts in the Lord. The other one is, you'll see it in verse 5, the one who trusts in man or in his own strength. All of the difference between how the lives of these two individuals go is based off where they have placed their trust. That is the key. It's not just what we believe, it's what we trust. Belief is a strong enough driver that it influences our behavior. Everything about our lives and the point that Jeremiah is making comes down to fundamentally where we have placed our trust. Now, in studying this, this might seem weird to you. The verse that gave me all the the trouble this week is verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. That verse bugged me all week. So I'm searching through old commentaries. I couldn't find a lot of guys who preached on Jeremiah 17. So I'm digging through old commentaries, old sermons, trying to figure out why the redundancy. 
why blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord? Is there something different between trusting in the Lord and someone whose trust is the Lord? Weird things catch my curiosity. So I'm thinking about this, I'm reading about this, and here's what, here's what I would tell you. I think it's possible for you to believe that you've put your trust in the Lord without having your trust be the Lord. Religious people, are, we're going to be um, able to do this. It, it, it's, it's a proclivity that we have that's very, very dangerous. Let me try to explain. We go through life and we say, listen, we're trusting in the Lord. We go to church, we're, we're praying, we're, we're trying to lead our families in a godly way, we're trying to control our temper, we're trying to control our behavior because we've put our trust in the Lord, believing that if we do that, God's now indebted to us. He's going to give us prosperity, he's going to give us good health, he's going to give us relationships without conflict. We're putting our trust in the Lord but the reality is we're doing it for a motive that reveals where our real trust is. It's different than our trust is the Lord, being the Lord. And the way that you know is when trials come, it exposes it. All of a sudden you go through a difficult season, there's a difficult relationship, there's a health scare, and all that you realize is all of a sudden you're angry at God because this isn't the deal that you cut, whether or not you realized it or not. And all of a sudden you've been trusting in the Lord because your ultimate trust is in harmony in your family, it's in a successful career, whatever that may be, and all of a sudden you've been trusting in the Lord, but the thing that is your trust is actually very, very different. You didn't realize it until the storm comes. And I believe what Jeremiah is saying here is he's saying, be very, very careful that you're not putting your trust in the Lord as an avenue or a means to achieve what is ultimately the thing that you've placed your trust in. Make sure that your trust is the Lord. And then what he does is he gives you three different things. You'll see this in your notes, three different things that, we, that allow us to know when the Lord is our trust, when that is truly the thing that we have placed our trust in. The first one is this, we'll be rooted. It says this, it says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Your, your life and your strength. The, the analogy that he's going to use throughout this passage is that of a tree versus that of a shrub. That of a tree planted by streams of water versus a shrub that is trying to survive in a, in a wilderness. And what makes the difference is where you've put your roots, where your roots are reaching towards. The text says that it sends out its roots by the stream. A, a tree planted by the water doesn't just stand there. It sends out its re roots towards the stream, the thing that will give it water, that will refresh it. And in this place, he's saying, when the Lord is your trust, you're like a tree planted by streams. It is the Lord that is going to bring the refreshment. It's going to bring life. It's going to sustain you. And quite honestly, we're going to hear about this later in verses 9 and 10. There is something in our hearts that the roots of our heart tend to want to reach towards things that cannot sustain us, that will actually dry us out. Our hearts always reach for those things that can't sustain us because our hearts are desperately wicked. And if you're going to root your life in something else, be that relationships, be that um, what people think of you, fame, whatever, those things will definitely eventually lead to a dryness. We need to be rooted in who God is. Here's the second thing, not only rooted, but confident. It says, it does not fear when heat comes. 
for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. Now, I made this point. I called it confident. Cal, last night in teaching, called it tangible peace. There should be something in your life that is noticeable that when the storms come or when the difficult seasons come, there's a tangible peace. It's not theoretical. It's something that can be witnessed. It's something that can be observed. It says this, and does not fear when heat comes. I wish that word when was if. Because if it was if, then I could say, well, maybe difficult times or difficult seasons are going to come, but it's not. It says when. And here's the truth. Heat comes for all of us. Followers of Jesus Christ, those who've placed their trust in the Lord, and those who've chose to put their trust in something else. Heat comes, trials come, difficulties come for all of us. It's been an interesting few days for me. Um, and the examples that I use, just so we're clear, it's not even people from inside our congregation, inside our church, but we have close friends who are dealing with um, some medical issues. And uh, right now, the prog- prognosis, the diagnosis, I can't say prognosis, I tried. The prognosis right now, it's not great. And... Um, how do they respond to that type of news? See, that, that's heat. That's seasons of trial, uncertainty. Talking with someone else, um, marriage difficulties, pouring themselves into trying to restore the marriage, getting counseling for their marriage, doing everything that they can to, to, to survive this difficult season in their marriage, but the spouse had other plans. They found their satisfaction in somebody else, and now this person's left to pick up the pieces. Man, that's, that's heat. That's storms. And I wish that I could preach to the followers of Jesus Christ that when you choose to put your trust in the Lord when He is your trust, that that's going to prevent the difficult seasons, that that's going to mean that you're going to have a life that is always cool breezes on some beach somewhere, but it's not the case. Heat always comes. But for those who put their trust in the Lord, the promise is this. When the heat comes, the leaves remain green. It's not anxious. It's not fearful. It's not consumed by doubts. John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and you need to understand the context. He's about to go to the cross. And he says this. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not you may, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, well, where do you get the peace in a storm? Where do you get the strength to sustain the trials that come our way? How, How do you deal with the difficult seasons in life? You've got to be rooted in something that's greater than yourself talked about this last week. If, if, if you're rooted in your performance or in your past or whatever those things are, in the midst of a storm, your root system is not deep enough to sustain you. And what Jeremiah is saying is make sure that your trust is the Lord because a season of heat is coming. Let me, let me flip that 180 right now because we live in Michigan, right? So how, how nice is the weather today? Like today is gorgeous. Like, I love a cool morning, cool evenings, beautiful sunsets, highs in the upper 60s, low 70s. Isn't this why we live in Michigan? But if you, can you sense something in the air right now if you've lived in Michigan long enough? As it gets cooler in the mornings, what are you sensing? What's right around the corner? 
it's coming, man, that stinking snow. And pretty soon, uh, all of a sudden, we're going to make sure that we got scrapers in our cars, right? The, the lawn chairs from soccer games are going to disappear. We're going to put scrapers. We're going to carry around salt. We're going to carry around shovels. Like, it's, it's coming. You can feel it. And, and in life, it's the same way. What's going to sustain you through those seasons of difficulty? It's where you put your roots. So the person... And God's ideal for us is this, that we're rooted in who he is, that that's where our identity comes from, that we're confident that we have a tangible peace. And then the third thing is, those that are rooted, if you're, root, or if you're rooted in the Lord, if he is your trust, you'll be fruitful. It says, he does not cease to bear fruit. Matthew 13 talks about four soils and, and, and the fruitfulness of how the word of God impresses different people's hearts depending on where they've put their trust where or what they are rooted in 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 matthew 13 the first soil it says the sower sows seed and it just falls on kind of a road and it never takes root just he's picking by is, is taken by the birds it just disappears never bears fruit that's the person who says there is no god i don't trust in god that's not my trust the, the, the scary two soils are the middle two soils. One falls in thorns, one falls on rocky roads and says there is a fruit. There are roots. The, the person acknowledges who God is. It comes to life. But it's not rooted deeply. Its trust is not in the Lord ultimately. And then what happens is persecution or trials or the deceitfulness of riches or the busyness of life, they come and they choke that thing out. But then there's a fourth soil, and that's the one that is rooted in. Our identity is rooted in the Lord. And it says, in that case, it bears fruit, sometimes 60-fold, sometimes 30, sometimes 100-fold. The idea being that the person whose the Lord is their trust, they will continue to bear fruit independent of the temperature, the seasons, the trials, and the storms. Now let's jump back to verse 5, looking at sin's consequences. Again, let me read to you from Psalm 1. It says, The wicked are not so. They're like the shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our verses, verse 5 says this, Thus says the Lord, Again, not Jeremiah, the Lord speaking, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Again, the difference is easy. Blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts his trust in man and makes flesh his strength. Now those two phrases... Cursed is the person who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength. I'm not sure Jeremiah could have nailed our culture any better than the way that he just described secular humanism in those words. If we have put our trust, if we have anchored our trust in anything that is man-made, it's going to take a bad turn. The result is that we're going to be cursed. Three things again from the text. Hopefully you see this. The first point is brokenness. The first part is brokenness. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. It's interesting. I think we need to talk just a minute since we're, the topic is sin. Let's get a sin definition on the board. 
Because I think sometimes what we do is we think of sin as the wrong that we do. Oh, I just told a lie, I sinned. Oh, I just lusted, I, I sinned. We, we, we look at sin as solely the bad things that we do. Well, for sure that's sin. But so is the good left undone. Theologians talk about this as sins of commission or sins of omission. It's not just the sins that we commit, it's the good that we leave undone. But what this text is telling us is, if, if you want to talk about sin, before you talk about what we didn't do or what we did do, it's actually rooted deeper than that. It's this idea that sin at its core is a turning of our hearts away from the Lord. I was reading from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher. The message that I was reading was on this passage from Psalm. I mean, I think he preached it in 1868. And he gave a, gave a great definition of what sin is. Spurgeon said it this way, Sin is a forgetfulness of the due relation which exists between a creature and the creator. We have a culture that's embraced this idea that we are the highest authority, that we can reach our ultimate, uh, we can define our own morality without God. And there's a creator that is crying out, that's a sinful approach because there is a God, there is a creator, and you've lost the right relationship between God the creator and who you think you are. Sin is a mindset more than an activity that says God is no longer on the throne. It's interesting. If you read down, our, our text kind of ends in 10, but just look down a verse into verse 11. Jeremiah gives this weird illustration. It says in verse 11, it says, Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets rich, but not by justice. In the midst of his day, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. So what Jeremiah is saying here is he goes, I've been, he's, he's observed these partridges, and he goes, what they do is really weird. He goes, they'll go sit on a nest of eggs that they didn't deliver. And they're going to hatch birds that aren't partridges. And they put all of their hope in these birds of this nest that isn't theirs. And then what happens is those birds wake up one day and they look and they go, you're not my mom, and they fly away. And the partridge is left back alone. And in context, he's talking about riches, but it's coming out of this talk about what sin is and where our heart is and where we've placed our trust. And the idea is we put our trust in so many things but the reality is our heart is so broken that we tend to trust the wrong things and they lead us to eventual disappointment even when we're doing the right thing. St. Augustine, in his confessions, he was reflecting on, on, on a childhood activity that he was involved in. The guy used to love to steal pears as a kid. So he would break into the farmer's field, he would steal pears, and uh, as an adult he's looking back and he's going, I wonder why I did that. Because here's the thing, I wasn't hungry. And I don't like pears. So, so, so why as a kid was I so inclined to want to break into the farmer's field and steal pears? And he goes, here's the only conclusion that I can come from. Come at, if I wasn't hungry and I didn't like pears, I like to do it because someone said don't do it. That's what drove it. There was this motivation deep in my heart that it's like, my will not thine be done. That's sin. It's a turning of our heart away from the Lord. It's putting ourselves on the throne, saying, my will, not thine, be done. And this brokenness consumes us. 
The second problem, it leads us to spiritual dehydration. It says this in verse 6, he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Sounds awful. Living in an uninhabited salt land out in the desert. And, and here's one of the things, a nuance of secular humanism that I think we've got to be very, very careful of. I think sometimes secular humanism has us look at our lives and when we find ourselves in a wilderness, when we find ourselves going through a trial, it, it suggests what the cause is. But the problem is because it's denied God, there's no um, spiritual cause to us living in a desert, living in a wasteland. And Jeremiah is saying here is the person who puts his trust in man, who doesn't put his trust in the Lord, that's the person that ends up in the desert. But secular humanism would never look at it as a spiritual issue. It's got to be an emotional issue or a physical issue or a mental issue. So if you're depressed, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with fears, there's always going to be a physical response. Well, there, there's a chemical imbalance. You've got to take this medication. And by the way, sometimes it is caused by physical reasons, right? And sometimes it can be caused by mental illness or emotional issues. So, so on Friday when I was across the state, the reason I was overwatching the soccer tournament is I was actually across the state on Friday to get a root canal. Yay, okay? And uh, I was over there, I was sitting in the dentist chair, and as I sat in the dentist chair, he, um, uh, the, the, the nurse before he came in is like, hey, just before we do this procedure, we need to take your blood pressure. So I'm sitting in a dentist chair, and they take my blood pressure. Do you think my blood pressure was high or low? High. high. Why was my blood pressure high? Because I was sitting in a dentist chair. Okay, so, so what I'm saying is I had anxiety, I had fear about the procedure, the root canal I was going to go through at the dentist, that had a physical impact on me. Do you, do you believe sometimes that physical illness is caused by stress, by anxiety? For sure, we can create those connections. I've counseled people on this church that are struggling with depression to the point of suicidal depression. And we've been able to trace back the cause. It wasn't a spiritual issue. It was actually a, a medical issue. The, the medicine that they were on, they changed dosages and it was triggering some thoughts. That's why the 30-second commercials on TV for some medicines, and medicines have 90 seconds of warning behind them. So sometimes our emotional condition can be caused by physical issues. Sometimes our physical issues can be caused by emotional issues. And I think secular humanism can explore all of those things, but what it leaves out of the equation is that sometimes we find ourselves in despair, we find ourselves in a wilderness, we find ourselves depressed or anxious, and at the root of it is a spiritual issue. And what Jeremiah is saying is he's saying, don't overlook that sometimes you find yourself in a wasteland because you've placed your trust in the wrong thing and it can't sustain you. And the argument that he's made is that's what happens when we trust in man. That's spiritual dehydration. Third thing is obvious. It's the last phrase. Dwell in an uninhabited salt land. Sin isolates us first from God and then from others. When the thing that we've rooted ourselves in is in ourselves or in man, we tend to do the things that we want to do what are best for us, and that's going to lead to isolation. Just quickly, for free, 
They're not in your notes. Let me give you three things that will keep you in the desert if you're finding yourself there now. Here's one, the mindset that I'll never change. Hey, this sin is something that I've battled for years, for decades. It's generational. It runs through my family, and that's never going to change for me. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The testimony of the gospel throughout the New Testament, be it if you looked at Peter's life, at Paul's life, at Zacchaeus's, the major people, of the, they can change. Don't, don't ever accept the lie that you are who you are and God could never change you. When we do that, we have throughout the gospel because the gospel is all about transformation. Here's a second one. It's not my fault. Adam in the garden. Why, Adam, why have you sinned? Well, it's the woman that you gave me. Woman, why did you eat the fruit? Well, it's the serpent. Always blame shifting. There are people in this room who go through their lives seeing themselves only as a victim. And it's an unrepentant reproach to our sin. It'll leave you in the wilderness. And here's the third, this idea that I'm unwilling to deal with my sin. Even as we talk about sin and as we go into the next passage where it says, the heart is deceitful above what we can even imagine. Some of you would sit here and say, I'm fully aware of my sin. I don't have to imagine it. I, I, I know what my sin bend is, and I'm not giving it up. I don't care what you say. That idea that you're going to hold on to sin, that you're not going to trust into the Lord, it's going to leave you in a wilderness. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, three demands of a Christian worldview if you're keeping notes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Three demands of a Christian worldview. Here's number one, ownership of our sin. Again, big idea. It's at the top of your notes. If you're keeping notes, sin breaks everything. Everything that is broken in our world and in our lives is a direct result of sin. This verse, Jeremiah 17, 9 from the Old Testament, is probably the strongest statement of the depravity of man or as strong a statement as you can find in the entire Old Testament. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, there is no not one, there is none that seeketh after God. Strong statements of the depravity of man. And Jeremiah 17, 9 is echoing that. Our hearts are desperately sick. Who can understand it? No part of the human being remains untouched by sin. The mind, the will, and the emotions, and the physical are all corrupted by sins. By, by sin. And the sad thing is, in churches around our country, preachers will avoid the topic of sin. They don't want to talk about it. It gets people down. It, it gets people upset. But, but if you don't understand your position, if you don't understand that our hearts are deceitful above what we can imagine, what happens next is you begin to believe that you can trust your instincts. Go with what you feel. Because you don't understand how broken that we are. Here's the second thing. Understand that God is judge. I think that's clear from the text. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. I think the combination of 9 and 10 is difficult. The heart's deceitful. Oh, I, the Lord, search the heart. Worst news. God sees it. He sees through our sinful hearts. He sees all of it. Understand that God is judge and then take sin seriously. What I love about this text is it says, listen, 
The heart's deceitful. You can't even understand it. God sees it. He searches the heart. But the text also gives us the response to our sinful heart. Look at verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. In 1996, my father-in-law was out on a walk with his wife, and as he was coming back up his driveway, he found himself short of breath. And my father-in-law, he was a big guy, but he, he kept himself in decent shape, and he played basketball and a lot of different things to stay active and stay healthy, but in this situation, he found himself like on his knees, like, like, like what's just hit me? So it's like, I've got some respiratory problem, like there's something wrong with my breathing, and, and, and I'm struggling issue was never his lungs, it was his heart. And what happened in, in his case, he, he had a disease, it was called, uh, just lost it. What it meant was with his heart, the, the muscle was hardening. It was sarcoidosis of the heart, very rare. And as his heart grew older, it was getting stiffer and stiffer. It was actually mummifying. It was not able to pump blood as well as it should, and he battled this for three years. What he thought was another issue, he found out was a heart issue, and eventually what he would need to survive would be a heart transplant, a new heart. Sin breaks everything. If you're finding yourself in the wilderness this morning, don't think for a moment that you shouldn't consider. Maybe there's a spiritual reason. Maybe I put my trust in the wrong place. Sin destroys. But here's the great news. Do you know that our God, through Jesus Christ, promises not just to make our heart better, but he promises to give us a new heart? In Ezekiel 36, it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Two great things in that verse. God is willing to give you a new heart, but you need to realize your heart's deceitful and wicked, and you can't do anything on, about it on your own. In the verses that we looked at, it's interesting. It talks about a shrub in the desert, but it talks about a tree planted by streams of water. The shrub just shows up. A tree has to be planted, and a tree can't plant itself. Somebody put it next to the streams of life. That's what God says he'll do for you. Listen, every one of us struggles with sin. We need to acknowledge that. We can't get to the best. Secular humanism will never get us to our ultimate It'll never satisfy because it doesn't deal with the core issue of our sin. When we recognize our sin, then we can find ourselves in a position that we can call out for a healer, somebody who can change our heart, somebody that can give us a new heart, somebody that can save. Have you done that? So the question is, I close, we're going to close just this. I'd ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes just for a minute. What's the trajectory of your heart right now? It's a weird season in our culture. For some, it's a season of isolation. For some, it's a season of discouragement. For some, it's an, a season where you're just aggravated in your soul. And God says, root yourself in me by streams of living water. I'm going to have Carolyn just sing over us a prayer that I hope is our prayer this morning. It's a prayer for God to restore our, 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 our hearts, our souls.